0: If you look at the calendar, we are fast approaching the end of 2022. Now this year, it seems rather busy for many purposes. And number one, the world continues to follow the war in Ukraine. And not only people are questioning this motive behind Russian leader Vladimir Putin, but meanwhile, people also asking the question, how will the war continue to change the rest of the world even for the year of 2023. But meanwhile, if we look at the issue domestically speaking in the US, the immigration law, or should I say the immigration policy continues to face major threats from both sides. The Republicans and the Democrats are trying really hard to come up with some of the feasible or tangible policies regarding this broken system. And some says that the Liberals are trying to politicizing this issue so that the 2024 presidential election is going to tipping to the Democrats. Now, last but not least, again, as we mentioned before, we're looking at the end of the year. How about the Christian value and looking ahead, how important it is as a nation today to continue to focus on this Christian belief, especially for the younger generations. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Dr. Jim Belcher. Again, Dr. Belcher is the president of Institute for New Vital Center, and he's the author of the book entitled Cold Civil War. Dr. Belcher, and welcome back to The Missing Piece.
1: Good to be here, Will.
0: Well, Dr. Belcher, again, as we mentioned before during the intro and looking ahead, I mean, looking back this year, 2022 seems very busy and also very fruitful for many purposes. But I wanna talk about this immigration and also this border crisis issue today in the US. Now, Dr. Belcher, previously you and I, we had a discussion regarding the similar topic, but right now it's time that we need to look at the border issue and also this immigration policy What do you think or how do you think we should understand this agenda come from the Democrats or come from the liberals? And do you think they're only politicizing this issue instead of genuinely looking for solutions? What do you think?
1: Yeah, you remember when we talked last time, I I was talking about, we were talking about Cold Civil War, my book, where I kind of covered extensively and I look at the history of immigration and then where we found ourselves at the time I was finishing up the book in the spring of 2021. So the first hundred days or so of the Biden administration, you and I were talking almost a year later, a little less than a year later from when I finished it. So we, by then we had a year and a half. Now we have almost two fiscal years to look at and we can see what, what the pattern is. Uh, what we do know is that the, that whatever, Whatever progress President Trump had made, you know, and he was accused of a lot of things by both sides, but whatever progress he made uh, and whatever policies he put into place to kind of control the border and slow the, the kind of the surge coming up from the south, uh, all of those were dismantled within the first days of the Biden administration, even though he promised to go slow. And probably the biggest thing that he he turned back was or he overturned was the remain in Mexico Policy. So this was the policy of if someone came to the border, they were apprehended or they came through the, the proper gate, uh, the port, they were uh, they, they claimed asylum and then they were sent back. They had to remain in Mexico until their number was called and their case was adjudicated and then they would make a decision. Well, that could be five or six years. The backlog is so tremendous. So that discouraged people from even journeying the thousand plus miles or however far they were coming to get to the border. Biden immediately got rid of that because he knew he didn't want to discourage the the flow to the border. And so what we found is that whereas Trump had gotten the border apprehensions down to about a little under a thousand a day, which in my mind is just still way too much, we're now at about 6,000 a day. Those are their encounters or arrests or however you want to call them at the border. You know, and then well I'm sure we'll talk about title 42. If that mm. goes away, they're predicting 14 to 16,000. Mm. Well, if you just run the numbers at at 6,000 a day, that's over 200 2 million uh, people coming to the border and being arrested, you know, on purpose. They want to be apprehended because they they want to then be let go. And it's completely overwhelmed the border facility. So they have they have detention centers and they have different ways of holding them. But once it gets to a certain level, they just simply release them. Um, you know, they they basically say you'll get a court date, you'll get contacted. And of course they never they, they just disappear into the heartland. And the Biden administration has just been bussing them into the mm-hmm. into the center of the country. So uh you know so you have so you have about six thousand a day which is about 2.2 million a year. Uh, some of those have been sent back. Maybe a third of those get sent back under Title 42. Uh, once that goes away, not only will those not get sent back, but it would just be an open invitation for most of Central America just to relocate to the U.S., you then have what's called the gotaways. Mm. And these are the people who do not want to be in the system. They don't want to turn themselves into the border patrol. Uh, they don't want anybody to know who they are. These are usually young men. This is where the most dangerous people are going to come through. And they're sneaking across um, and they're, they're they're evading capture. So in the first year, I think, of the Biden administration, fiscal year 2021, it was somewhere around 390. Remember, that's what they guess it is. I mean, that's mm. what they're those are the getaways It's probably much higher fiscal year 2022, they think it was up to about 600,000. And this year we're on pace to have about 900,000 that get away. It's much, much higher than that, right? Mm-hmm. That That's what they, maybe they capture by a drone footage or something where they can't, they can't get them. It, it's probably twice that. So if it's, if it, even if it's a million or a year, these gotaways, these are illegal immigrants that are not even in the system at that point there's no way to know who they are and they're just escaping into the, into the middle of the country, you know, and and these numbers are staggering. I mean, it's just so hard for Americans to understand what is really happening on a, on a daily and a yearly basis. It's, it's just absolutely staggering. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Rhode Island of 18,000 people, Mm. which was a, you know, a very populated, nice bedroom community. But it's it's almost when Title forty two is eliminated, it's like my like the entire town of my population coming into the U.S. every single day, mm. over and over and over again, um, and we don't know who these people are. We don't know what their criminal records are because we're not, we're, and they're not even even when we capture them, very few of them are being being turned back. Right, and it's there's no doubt that what this is doing is destabilizing, certainly the border towns. Uh, But it's also probably it's leading to a destabilization of the entire United States at some point.
0: So, yes,
1: the the crisis is bad.
0: Right. Of course, Dr. Belcher, I 100 percent agree with you. But again, based on what you just shared with us, but it's it's unfathomable to think about that there are more than two million people. And again, waiting at the border and just waiting for the opportunities. But on the other hand, another question we need to address is, again, Dr. Belcher, from your perspective, how much do you think the Democrats or the Liberals, especially under Joe Biden, really care about the border crisis? Really care about those people? Because we know that for for years that he's been saying that America is a country that built on principles and built on laws, and which you know it, which is true. And this is the value, or this is one of the values for American, continue to be strong, and which is a build on values and build on principles. But how much do you think the current administration really would like to solve this issue? Or Biden is just waiting for the time until he able to join the reelection again for the 2024 and again, using that as a political tool in order to swing the voters and then toss them into the ocean again. What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I, well, the one thing that I've discovered in the last few years of doing pretty extensive research into into this situation is that this isn't just the Democrat issue. Mm. It's not just Democrat talking points. So if you, if you go back even 10 years, this wasn't a Democrat position. The Democrats tended to favor border enforcement. They wanted to protect the U.S. workers. Mm. They were concerned about the about inner city jobs. Um, The the history of the Democratic Party was one of labor unions. Right. And so every time you bring in undocumented workers and it pushes wages down and it hurts workers. So that's when the Democratic Party was the party of workers. It was always the, the libertarian wing of the Republican Party that was pro open borders. It's part of it's just part of their philosophy. They want complete freedom of movement around the world. They don't want borders. They don't want nation states. Um, and they they prefer that people can live here. They, as a matter of fact, they they don't think that a American has any more right to be here than a Nicaraguan does, for instance. Mm. Where so it's a fundamentally different view of what the nation state is. And so for years this was the libertarian position, right? Because they want they were pro business and they wanted cheap labor uh, and they wanted their companies to be able to to be able to get the un- undocumented workers because it would it would just improve the the bottom line um there's somewhere there there was a shift and i think it came when the democrats finally realized uh that they could change the voting patterns of the us by changing the demographics and it started out here in california where i live and i've lived out here long enough i'm not a native my wife is born here but i i came probably let's see, i was here first in late 88 89 so i've been here quite a long time and we've watched the country just uh the, excuse me the state be transformed by immigration both legal and illegal uh we're to the point where the the legacy americans that have been here and built california have become more and more of uh the the minority where it in many places we're now under under 50 percent, right and it continues as as mexicans pour in and latin americans pour in and and others from Asia pour in with chain migration is pushing out the legacy Americans that had been here. And what they've done is they've completely flipped the state that was once a Republican stronghold. Remember, this is where Orange County, California, just south of Los Angeles, where all the all the presidential candidates like like President or Governor Reagan, which uh, right. uh, Ronald Reagan would come to to raise money and to get their support. Um, so it's unfathomable that a Republican governor hasn't been elected in decades when this used to be a solidly Republican, mm-hmm. middle class, upper middle class state. It's been completely transformed now. Right. So Republicans are outvoted two, two and two and a half, three to one here. They have no say. It's a one party state. So the floodgates are continued to be open and crime continues to soar. Homelessness continues to soar. Some of that brought on by by homelessness or by immigration. Some of it, the immigrants are now pushing other poor people out of their homes. There's no, there's not enough housing stock because of the inflow of immigration. So you have a massive crime and homeless problem here. And the state is just, you know, verging on the edge of bankruptcy in many ways, at least moral bankruptcy. Um, and they've, they've been able to successfully transform this state. Big tech loves it, the, the wealthy love it, but you basically now have a surf, uh, you have the surf class and you have the oligarchs, right? So it's a kind of neo-feudalism. So where all the middle class is just being squeezed out, they're leaving, the poor have remained and then the rich live behind their gated communities, uh, their gated walls and whatnot. And they have they have the cheap labor, and they they have the cheap help that they they need to, to to live their their lavish lifestyles. And I think the Democrats finally realize, well, wait a second here. We can gain uh, by changing the, the demographics of the, the United States. We can gain one party control forever, mm. right? And so they they so they're they're attempting to kind of just transform how. how how voting takes place. And you see that's happening. It's pretty much happened throughout the the Southwest as states have once solid Republican are becoming more, you know, pink and purple. And then, you know, eventually they, they transform into, into blue states. Uh, So they know exactly what they're doing. And so you have this real uh, coordination between, between like the libertarian side, the wall street side, the big business side of the Republican party with the democratic side that where they both want, Open borders, and they want mass immigration because that that gives them the workers they want. And it also is a massive transfer of wealth, right? Because if they if wages go down, where does the where does the the, the savings go to? It goes to big businesses, right? Mm. If they if they can pay under the table wages, or they don't have to pay taxes, or they uh, they can they can get around uh, paying Americans what they what they would probably require if it was a tight labor market. Uh, they don't have to do that. So they the money amasses to them. And it's this huge transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich that's going on. And so you see, even over the last 10 or 15 years, that gap between the rich and the poor gets bigger and bigger. And you see that really clearly out in California. California now has the largest gap between rich and poor. Mm. And there's more poor people here than anywhere else. And it's everywhere um, as they continue to do that. And they don't, they're not putting in any policies to stimulate the kind of economic growth that would actually lead to that. In fact, uh, would actually improve the the plight of the middle class. In fact, they're doing the very opposite of that, right? So we saw that during COVID, they were, they shut down all the small businesses, but left open the big box stores Mm. and they, they just decimated the, the small restaurant owner and the small boutique owner and pushed them out. And many of them have left. They're all, they're all heading to Texas right? or they're heading to other, they're heading to other States. So, Um, It's, it's a plan. I think California has always been the model. Um, Kamala Harris is from out here, right? She's a senator from California and California has always been the model for what they want to do to the entire country. So if you want to know what they're doing through immigration in the country, just look what they've done here. It's Mm -hmm. the blueprint is here and they know what they're, they know that they're following it. So back to the original point, I, you know, I hesitate to say this is just a liberal, democratic thing. I mean, I think when we fall into that t- t- trap where we're getting involved in the theatrics of Washington, D.C. and the Uniparty, uh, the bottom line is that most the, most parties, uh, bo- both parties are probably, by and large, support mass immigration because they're pro-business and because mm. they 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 get the pressure from the business lobby to do it in the high. And high tech. I mean, Mitch McConnell has said nothing about the border. Doesn't mm. care about stopping it. Doesn't care about protecting it whatsoever. You know. And but I will say this. You know. So you have, and then you have Trump, right? So Trump was an anomaly. Trump took on the Wall Street faction and the high tech fash- right. faction of of our party. He's very much an anomaly in this uh, Make America Great movement, the MAGA movement that wants to protect the border, wants to protect our workers here in the U.S., um, wants to protect the integrity of the American way of life. It's not anti-immigration. It's not against letting people in, but letting them in in a way that we have time to then assimilate them and not be just completely overwhelmed as we have in the last in the last 50 years. So Trump just went against really where the Republican Party had gone, uh, had been going for the, for decades. And obviously he's, he's opposing Uh, what the biden administration is doing Mm.
0: dr belcher again i agree with you because we know that not only the border crisis poses threat domestically and you know again we look at the business and we look at this general economic outlook but meanwhile and also that we know that without solving the crisis at the border it also hurts the value of democracy for the country now Let's bring up to the next topic. When we talk about democracy, as we mentioned before, we're still looking at the war in Ukraine. And I'm sure you follow the news that lately President Zelensky paid a visit to the US and he sat down with the current sitting President Joe Biden, you know, had a few exchanges and you know give address to the Congress, etc. Now, again, Dr. Belcher, when we look at the war in Ukraine, it's not just about a war between two countries. Also, it brings issue of human rights and bring the issue of uh, military capabilities and also this uh, um, Ukraine war related to um, uh, uh, financial aid, etc. Now, again, Dr. Belcher, from your perspective, How do you think or how would you assess the performance of the U.S. government so far in terms of supporting the uh, country of Ukraine and also understanding the right strategies or uh, the acceptable strategies to deal deal with Russia? Do you think at this moment, the U.S. should focus more on domestic affairs or domestic issues instead of pouring amounts of, of money into a war which you at the united states is not actually might not be on the winning side yeah i think
1: it's, it's it's i mean let me just start by saying i mean most people's heart goes out to the ukrainians right mm-hmm. so when they're attacked by a foreign aggressor uh, the people are the ones that, that get hurt the most, right? So the people have no vote in anything that goes on. Um, the Ukrainians have no choice uh, in this matter. Uh, and their cities and their livelihood and some of their families and their lives have been sacrificed for, for geopolitics. Um, you know, the, the question of whether it was could this have been avoided? Could a negotiation mm. have taken place? Uh, between Russia and the Ukraine to avoid this war, uh, some sort of a compromise. It, 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 at this point, it doesn't, that doesn't matter, right? It's water under the bridge. Nobody made that attempt. There was no serious attempt at a compromise. And I think everybody was stoking the, you know, pounding the war drums from early on. Um, and the U.S. got involved. I think the danger is that this is, this is a border crisis that impacts that region of the world. If anybody should have stepped up, it should have been it should have been Europe, Europe. It should have been NATO mm. if they were highly concerned about this. Uh, this does not affect the U.S. Uh, in our day to day lives here. We have our own problems. We have our own border crisis. We have our own deal struggles with uh, unemployment and poverty and and uh, some very very difficult things here, I- including you know a massive budget crisis that's about ready to bankrupt our country if it already hasn't. And so I don't think we had any business uh, pouring the kind of money we have in there, particularly when we don't have it. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that we don't have this money that's going to the Mm -hmm. Ukraine. It's all, it's all just being printed out of nowhere, right? It's it's uh, the U S government has gotten to the point now, particularly through COVID with these trillion dollar budget packages Mm -hmm. where they're just printing money out of thin air. Um, and then they're giving it away. I think what the concern with a lot of conservatives and people in the MAGA movement is that this appears to be a huge money laundering scheme where the money uh, that that the politicians want goes first to Ukraine to fight this war. Then we have no idea where it goes. Mm. Uh, There's nobody knows where what it's what it's purchasing, where it's going. No one's doing audits. Nobody's telling us where the money is being spent. And it just seems to be like it's an open spigot. More and more keeps going every time. Every few months he comes back for for more money, but nobody can account for where it went. I mean, we do know that the industrial military complex. So all the Arms makers are making out, making a ton of money. So they're making out like bandits. But we don't know where the rest of the money is going to. Is it going to Zelensky? Is it going to his oligarchs? Is it going to the rich and powerful in that country? Where's it going? Just tell us. Let us know. Uh, do an accounting of it. Is it coming back to our U.S. politicians? Is it being money launder? Is money laundering taking place? We do know that with the FTX collapse a couple weeks ago that money was being filtered back from Ukraine through FTX back to US politicians. So how much of that was money laundering taking place to support US politicians? Americans just want to know it's it's supposedly our tax dollars, although I don't think this is our tax money at all. As I said, this is this is just money fiat dollars being created out of nowhere and uh, in creating even more and more debt in the U.S. But I think at this point, there's we're so far past any type of fiscal responsibility um, and and any integrity when it comes to balancing budgets, whether it's the Republicans or not. I mean, Mitch McConnell is supporting this 1.7 trillion dollar omnibus bill uh, that's making its way through both houses of Congress. Uh, we don't have that money. That's there it doesn't even it doesn't really even exist. We we mm. overspend every single year. So what exactly where's the money coming from this going to the Ukraine? And as I said already, what's it going for? Who's spending it? Who's getting it? We have no idea. And we may never know. And I think that's the danger is uh, we have enough problems in this country that we need to take care of not to be funding a foreign war that really doesn't really doesn't impact us, no matter how much the left and members on the right want to say that this war is about democracy. It's not about democracy. Ukraine prior to this was every bit as totalitarian as
0: as as Putin's side was. Mm. Again, Dr. Belcher, you made several significant points. Again, I agree with you because I think at this moment that when we look at the middle class and when we look at the people who live in the middle class are actually suffering tremendously, again, not only because of the pandemic, but also look at this general economic outlook For most of the small business owners, again, you're right. I mean, it's every day paycheck to paycheck. That really matters to individual and also that really matters to the family. You know, again, we got children to raise and we got a, a food. We need to bring food on the table. But meanwhile, the government continue to promise like the figure is one point seven million, which is staggering for us to understand if we don't know how the government is spending the money and why even bother to make the promises just because the war that has nothing to do with the U.S. at the first place. Now. I know your time is very busy. Now, let's get to the last portion of the conversation, Dr. Belcher. I want to talk about this Christian value. You know, when we look at the war in Ukraine, look at the border crisis, and also looking ahead, we're only less than two weeks away from 2023. You know, since I was little and I was educated, you know, again, gracefully by my parents regarding the Christian value in this country, no, but somehow, statistically speaking, more and more younger generations today are walking away from the Christian value and no longer believe that America is based this Christian principle. You know, we're looking at this a liberal agenda, you know, legalizing the same-sex marriage and, you know, bring drag queens into the kindergarten, you know, exposed to the kids and et cetera. Number one, what is happening to the Christian value to our country today? That's number one. And number two, how do you think that today we should educate the younger generation in order to let them realize the importance, or should I say, the indispensable part of the Christian belief that ingrated from the founding fathers?
1: Yeah, that's a good good summary. I mean, one of the things that I do lay out in Cold Civil War is kind of the the Christian foundation of the U.S. So while I wouldn't say that. This was a, a specifically, you know, a Christian country per se. You had a high percentage of, of believers, thoughtful believers that were involved with the, you know, in the founding fathers mm. that had, were, and they were also political philosophers and statesmen who brought those principles Particularly the natural law principles, as I talk about in the book, and natural right principles, and formulated our our constitution, you know, Declaration and then of the Constitution on that, and so there was a heavy influence of of Christian principles along with the best of the the Enlightenment, particularly the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, in 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 formulating this experiment called the you know the the system are what we call constitutional Republicanism. So it's all there for students who want to investigate it. Like I said, I have a whole chapter on kind of the genius of how Christianity was the second constitution or the constitution under the constitution. Um, but you, you cannot have democracy without a virtuous people. And so during the, during the revolutionary war, during the time of the the, the, the founding there was a statement that William Wilberforce, who is the prince who is the president of what's now known as Princeton University, used to say that that, that the republic needs liberty. Everybody knew that, but liberty needs virtue, mm-hmm. that you can't have liberty without a virtuous people. And you can't have virtue without Christianity or what they would call religion. They would lump mm-hmm. it all under all the denominations under that. And if you reverse that, so the republic, the republic needs liberty, liberty needs Virtue, virtue needs religion. If you go backwards and you say, if you take away religion, then there's no virtue.
0: Mm. And without
1: a virtuous people, democracy is not possible because everybody's a con artist, right? and everybody's out for getting what they can get. And if you don't have a virtuous people, then you really don't have liberty because everybody is taking it from one another and eventually the government cracks down and becomes totalitarian. And once you don't have liberty, you don't have a republic. And that's kind of what's happened is the church has really abdicated its ability to train its own people in these principles. Uh, we've lost, we, we've begun to lose our, our constitutional republic. Mm. And that's tremendously sad as someone who's an ordained minister, a pastor, um, the fact that the church has not done what it needs to do. And whenever it's given major tests, whether it was the COVID lockdowns that shut down churches out here in California for a year and a half, um, whether it's, uh, the the whether it's the danger of the vaccines and not pointing that out oh, to yeah, people and yeah. not helping Christians think through health issues. So now many of them struggle with health issues that then deacons and whatnot in the church have to take care of with. But they could have prevented that um, or, or whether it's you, you mentioned the drag queens and what's yeah, happening yeah. with with sexuality and gender. Um, there, there are forces in this country that are attempting not only at the border economically, but also politically and culturally Mm -hmm. to completely transform this country into something completely and utterly different. And if the church doesn't step up and say, no, this is wrong because it's harming people in this country doesn't step up. And I'm not talking about being political necessarily, but training their people to be disciples of Christ. And that includes citizenship. My favorite verse is Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul calls us, the apostle Paul says, we're supposed to present, because of the mercies of God, we're to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And in the process of doing that, um, we, are, we go through what's called mind transformation. So we begin to learn what, how the world is trying to push us into its mold. So we have to teach Christians how not to get pushed into the mold of the world. And that includes politics, economics, Mm -hmm. as well as cultural issues and spiritual issues. But at the same time, we've got to, we've got to teach our young people how to have their mind renewed so that they can begin to see and live into a different life. What we see is that the culture that Christians have been trying to engage for the past forty years has been so strong, so subtle, but now so in your face that it's completely transforming the church instead of the other way around. The church and Christians is supposed to be transforming the culture so that we can have virtuous people, so that we can have liberty, so that we can have a republic. And that, that's completely shifted where the culture now is dictated by. The the far left movement joined in by a lot of some of the far left libertarians where we don't they don't want any type of morality, any type of virtue. So, it, yeah, it's it it is not good. And on my worst days, my most discouraging days, I don't think we have much of a future, but I continue to pray for revival. I continue to pray that people will wake up. Um, and before before it's too late, because we're on the verge of completely losing this constitutional republic, mm. um, or and maybe already have and don't know, quite know it yet.
0: Dr. Belcher, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking one more question again. As we mentioned before, and I agree with you, that's something that I do on a daily basis as well, is not only pray for our own souls, but also pray for this nation and pray for the leaders. Now, as we know that we're going to step into the year of 2023, and again, not only that people are still remain hopeful and positive towards the future of the country. And also when we look at this relationship, uh, within the family members and also, you know, among the members within the church. So Dr. Pelcher, help us to understand from your perspective, how do you think we should pray for our nation at this moment? And also how do you think we should pray for this integrity and also leadership within the churches? Because we know that whenever we come to crisis, and even though we we have crisis in life, or we come to crisis as a nation, God is still sitting on the throne. And again, you know, we still believe that he has the plan for this great country, for this great country of people. So how do you think that we're supposed to pray for this country for the year of 2023? And what are some of the significant prayers that we need to address on the daily basis as Christians? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. I mean, I mean, I think more than, you know, we, we start by praying for the salvation of, of our family members and the, and the souls of of our neighbors and the people in our country, because unless there is a, a, a mass revival where a significant portion of people start coming to Christ, we're not gonna see much Societal change, or much of the impetus for that kind of change, and if you just study the history of revivals, you know that it takes a certain amount of conversions to kind of overwhelm the system and where reforms start taking place. So, I, I, I would say for that, we need to be praying for our families. The families and marriages are under siege. If we, if Christians don't do their part in creating strong marriages and strong families, we're we're doomed um, as a country. Uh, the the bedrock is is families, is the two parent family a father and a mother. And so we need to be praying for the strength of marriages and the strength of, of families um, we need to be praying that we the church begins to disciple its own and that it does a much better job. you know what i ever what I see is that either churches have gone woke, so the culture has completely pushed them into the mold or their or churches are completely silent. they don't want to talk about any of these things, so they narrow spirituality down just to our our personal walks with God. but Christianity and discipleship is so much more than that, so we need to pray we need to pray for that. But I also need think we need to pray there for for kind of the breaking of the mass psychosis. There t- there appears to be at least with about half the population, uh, kind of a mass psychosis that has gone on um, over the over the last few years. That has people in in kind of this this grip of hysteria when it comes to health and safety and the fear mm-hmm. of COVID and and the government and and all all that's been going on. And I I don't know how else to kind of break that spell. Uh, other than through prayer and other through I mean we're you know we we like to talk about principalities and powers you know that have kind of that are active in this world and there's a spiritual dynamic and I think the enemy has blinded a lot of people uh, in our country and around the world and we need kind of the blinders and the scales to fall off from their eyes to kind of see what has been going on and the church should be right at the heart of praying for that because People are dying. I mean, we have a 100,000 people dying a year from from fentanyl overdoses and nobody seems to care. We have people falling into poverty and nobody seems to care about the inner cities and the poverty that's going on. We have middle class families getting wrecked in this economy and we don't see the church praying for, for that. We see marriages falling apart. We need to be praying for that. But there just seems to be this kind of the veil over the eyes of of so many people in our country, and we just need to pray that that's dropped, uh, that veil gets dropped, and people can see clearly before it's too late.
0: You're right, Doctor Belcher. Again, as we mentioned before, and also as a Christian, we always say that when we are down to nothing, God is up to something. So again, as a Christian myself, I continue to pray for our leaders and pray for the country and also, most importantly, it's start um, this movement and, uh, and going back to the church and help the church to stay strong in the midst of the chaos. Well again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Jim Belcher. Dr. Belcher is the president of the Institute for New Vital Center and he's the author of the amazing book called Cold Civil War. And I strongly encourage everyone to go online look for his book and also for his work. Well, Well, again, Dr. Belger, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. Again, we're only two or three days away from Christmas. And again, we want to wish you a great holiday. And we're looking forward to having you back on the show for the year of 2023. Again, thank you so much for doing this. Merry Christmas.